We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Well, let me uh, invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Maybe if you uh, regu- regularly attend on Sunday evenings, you'll, you'll know right where we're going because that's uh, been the focus of our time on Sunday evenings is 1 Timothy. And uh, although it's not a Sunday evening, doesn't mean we can't be uh, in 1 Timothy. And so we'll pick up there in verses 17 to 19. I'll read... Um, I'll read those verses and give a little brief comment on the context prior to those verses and surrounding it for those of you who haven't been with us during this study in 1 Timothy. And then uh, we'll point out a few few key background information and then work through just uh, three verses this morning before the kind of benediction, the end of the letter, which we'll look at next time, Lord willing. Paul writes, though, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, he says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Let me uh, just then walk back a few steps here into um, back to verses 3 through 10. Paul addresses false teachers. It's kind of his final address, final admonition concerning the false teachers, which is a large part of the letter addressing the false teaching that is being propagated by the false teachers, what is the proper response to that false teaching uh, for the believers, but also for Timothy, and also for any future uh, pastors, elders in the church. How are they to live in light of Uh, what Paul is teaching in contrast to the false teachers. But in verses 3 to 10, Paul addresses the false teachers. He talks about the underlying motivations for their teaching, which is uh, pride and greed that motivate them to to teach in a way that is contrary to the Scripture, that is self-serving in its its, uh, methods and manner. And he then, in verse six of chapter, verse six of chapter six, uh, he exhorts the believers to have godliness with contentment, because those two combined are great gain or profitable. But then he says, uh, for, or in verse seven, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And so, why pursue, you know, profit out of a uh, in a in a wrong manner about a false teaching, uh, rather pursue godliness with contentment. 
In verse 9 of chapter 6, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. And so this both describes the path of the false teachers, but it could also describe someone else in the church who isn't necessarily a false teacher, but is capitulating to that false teaching. Who's, they're following it. They're going down that path with them. And they're you know, being, greedy, being greedy. They're uh, pursuing wealth and not pursuing the things of God. And this leads to all kinds of evils, Paul says. You're probably very familiar with this verse, verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so there's a warning here of not following the path that the false teachers have taken because it leads to this kind of destruction and perdition. But then in verses 17 to 19, Paul doesn't seem to be addressing the false teachers because his his command, although strong, the charge that he gives here is is strong, but it's not as strong as the commands or the warnings uh, or the, the reprimands that he gives the false teachers. The language isn't quite as strong here. It is strong, but it seems to be geared more toward professing believers in the church who are wealthy. Paul's not really calling into question their faith, but asking them or causing them to have to consider, how am I going to live in light of the riches that I have? How am I going to use them? How am I going to think about them? How am I going to live as one who is wealthy and as a believer? And so keep that in mind that Paul isn't talking about those who have strayed from the faith like he says or like he speaks about in verse 10, but rather, again, those who are believers in the church but do have wealth, a measure of wealth, and how they are to live in light of that. I also wanted to note in verses 17 to 19, before we get more into the text, that uh, your versions most likely have uh, verses 17 to 19 broken up into at least two sentences, if maybe not three sentences. Uh, The New King James uh, has two sentences that uh, these verses are broken up into. But really, if you look at the Greek text, it is all one sentence. And that's not too surprising. Paul often does that. He has this, you know, uh, what we may feel like are, you know, run-on sentences or just long, lengthy statements that, you know, can be confusing. And so many translators have chosen to break it up for uh, the English reader so that it's not as difficult not as laborious to kind of work through, but I think it's important to note that because there is a number of uh, infinitives in this, uh, in this, in these verses. In fact, I think there's six or seven infinitives, you know, to be statements, and those are uh, all subordinate to the main verb, which is in verses verse 17, which is this command, command, and so that's the main verb here. And, you know, the implied subject is Timothy. You know, Timothy, you command those who are rich in this present age not to be, there's the first infinitive, haughty, or to be, or, uh, or to trust, excuse me, in uncertain riches. So there's the second, and so forth. And we'll, get, we'll look more at that. But there's really six or maybe seven, um, forgetting in the moment, infinitives. And those are really the focus of Paul's 
argument here. Command these things, and then he goes on to list them out. You may notice, though, at uh, uh, in verse 18, maybe depending on your translation, the New King James doesn't have it, but I think the ESV and maybe the NASB has, uh, in verse 18, it begins saying, uh, instruct them to be uh, or to do good. But they've actually supplied that word instruct because of what the beginning of verse 17 says uh, concerning instruct or command them to do these things. So they're just reemphasizing that main verb in verse 18, although it's not actually in the Greek text. But look with me back at verse 17 as we kind of work through the text here and look at what Paul has concerning the rich. And all of this, again, is concerning the rich and how they are to live. He says this in verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age. Now, you know, how exactly do we measure what, you know, who are rich in a church? You know, and even in the historical context, uh, would we understand who they are? We will recognize them. I think you perhaps would recognize them by, you know, their apparel or clothing, perhaps, one way. Um, but that's not the only thing. You know, it could be, you know, the measure of wealth that they have and, and uh, you know, land would often be a big thing. Number of servants. Remember, uh, Paul just mentioned servants and masters back at the beginning of chapter 6. And so wealth could be measured by the number of servants or slaves that they own, uh, land, uh, other kind of assets that they might have, uh, you know, buildings or you know, their kind of business fields and so forth, that kind of falls under, under land um, and so forth. But in this present age, you know, how do we understand wealth? Well, we might, first of all, think of bank accounts. You know, how much do you have in the bank? And, of course, you know, really most people don't know how much you have, and that's fine. It's a private matter. So, you know, you kind of have to self-assess, you know, what is, what is my wealth? What has God given me? getting a little bit ahead of myself in the sense of, you know, God giving you those things. But, you know, what has God given me? And maybe you measure it mostly in the number in your bank account, but there are other things that God has given that, uh, that increases your wealth. You know, you might have other investments. You might have more property. You might have homes. You know, uh, you know the typical, you know, kind of situation, not typical, but often situation here in Michigan is people like to have their up north home. And that's not wrong. I'm not, that's you know, don't take me criticizing uh, people who are wealthy. And that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not criticizing the mere fact of wealth. He's not saying you should not be wealthy. He's giving instructions for the wealthy. And make sure you understand that distinction there. He's not saying wealth is wrong. He's just saying those who are wealthy behave in such a manner, do such things with your wealth that are pleasing in God's sight. So perhaps you might first think, you know, well, I don't really fall into that category of wealth. You know, I don't maybe have a large bank account number. I have a sufficient amount. I don't have other homes. You know, I don't uh, own a lot of cars. I, you know, don't take many extravagant vacations. I'm just kind of the run-of-the-mill person. And, uh, and we may feel that way because of the level of prosperity that we have in the United States. Uh, I, I didn't do the calculations, uh, the current calculations on, you know, the average American and their wealth. But if you just look at the world around us in general, uh, those in the United States are, are 
extravagantly wealthy in comparison, or proportionally wealthy in comparison to the rest of the world. Uh, you know, even even the the lowest of low incomes or no income people, uh, many of them are still above the you know the the uh, average you know poverty line uh, in what they have. And so, you know, perhaps most of us, as we're sitting here this morning, in light of that, could say, you know what, we do have a measure of wealth. God has given us uh, much more than we need so that, you know, we can even have some of our wants, you know, where many people cannot have that. And uh, most of us, you know, aren't in, in jeopardy of losing our home tomorrow, I don't think, or, you know, uh, you know losing all of our wealth we're not having enough to put food on the table tomorrow or next week. Uh, most of us don't have to worry about that whatsoever because of the riches that we have. And so we have to then understand that, you know, in light of the context here, that Paul is speaking to those who are rich, and so don't automatically dismiss yourself from that category just because, you know, you don't have as much as X, Y, or Z person, you know, the politician or, you know, the... Uh, you know, the wealthy of Ann Arbor that we, that we know uh, or see. So don't disabuse yourself of that thought. Think, what does God have for me to learn from this? Because I do have a measure of riches and wealth. Paul qualifies those who are rich as those who are rich in this present age. And that's an important uh, qualifier because of what he's going to say later on in verse 19. Those who are rich in this present age, that is, in the riches that, that are in this, in this world, the material things of this world, uh, the riches that come from out of this world, not, not the world to come, but the things of this age, this present age. And so Paul, is, uh, we know, is specifically talking about the riches that you obtain in, in the world, material things. You know, financial investments that you know provide growth and, and more assets. And he gives two kind of negative commands here concerning the rich and the two infinitives, the first two, which is number one, not to be haughty, not to be prideful. And of course, you know, it's not uh, doesn't take too much imagination to know how someone who is rich uh, often has the characteristic of being proud. Why? Because they feel that they have done well in their life. They feel that they've achieved a certain status uh, uh, before people, other people, and for themselves. They feel like they are, depend- are independent, you know, uh, that they can take care of their own. Uh, they take care of themselves, take care of their family because of the things that they have achieved, the wealth that they have obtained. And so they become less dependent on other people, on, certainly on God, first and foremost. And so we have to be leery of, in our wealth, not to have a proud or haughty spirit, but to be humble. And Paul's going to give us the reason why we should be humble in just a moment. And this kind of reflects what Paul said earlier about the false teachers in verses 3 to 10, that these people were proud uh, and Maybe for kind of different reason, because you know they were they were proud in their own knowledge, but people can be proud in other things as well: knowledge, wealth, uh, you know, education, uh, 
you know, uh, status, you know, uh, their position in society. And so, just like all those things, Paul commands them not to be haughty in their wealth. And the second uh, thing he says concerning that, he says, nor trust in uncertain riches, or some translations might say, riches that have uncertainty. Why are riches uncertain? Well, because they're fleeting, are they not? You may have them one day, and they're gone the next. Certainly, they're gone the day you die. I mean, they don't cease to exist, but you no longer have control over them. Remember what Paul says back in uh, verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And that is why riches, the riches that come from this present age, are so uncertain. They provide no level of, of hope uh, for the world to come. And in many ways, they provide no hope for this present age because, again, like I said, and like Paul is getting at, is they could, they're so fleeting. They could be there one day, the next. You may find yourself feeling confident in what you have, and yet the next day or the next year, God takes all of that away. You know, the, uh, the economy crashes. You lose your business, you lose your job, you lose your home. And the things that you were putting your trust in, Paul says, setting your hope in, all of a sudden are gone. And now what is your hope in? It was wrongly placed from the beginning. And so Paul is redirecting, trying to reorient the mindset of those who are wealthy to say, don't be haughty, don't be prideful, and don't set your hope in these things because they're so uncertain, they're fleeting. Um, not just in the, for the world to come, but even in this present age. And, you know, on a very base level, to put your hope in riches is not the virtue of a Christian. We should never be putting our hope in anything, our trust in anything else but God. And Paul says this. You know, he reorients their mindset. He says, don't be haughty. Don't trust in uncertain riches. But... And we could supply uh, kind of the qualifier here. But put your trust or set your hope in the living God. And that's reorienting our mindset then to not trust in these fleeting things, to not trust in ourself or the things that we've obtained, not uh, in what we can achieve or, or the, the wealth that we've achieved from a measure of you know, hard work or God's blessing. The two really go together but rather put your trust in the living God. Why? Well, Paul tells us the source of the riches that we do have, the wealth that we do have, come from him. So how can we be prideful? Why should we be prideful? We shouldn't. There's no reason. Neither should we trust in uncertain riches, but trust in the one who is the source of those riches. Why trust in things down here when those things only came from a higher authority, a higher power, uh, a more uh, uh, the, the God who is living, who provides all things, Paul says. Look at the end of verse 17. This is the living God is the one or the source who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And I think there's kind of a play on words here. He talks about, you know, don't trust in uncertain riches, but Trust in the one who richly provides. And so there's a, 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 
a riches, there's riches that are not just monetary, but there's a riches that come from God. All things to enjoy. And I was thinking about this uh, last evening. I was actually speaking with Darius on the phone, and we were talking about this passage. And um, I found it interesting in studying this out that although, again, Paul is not saying that riches are bad, uh, but how we, are, how we use riches are, is, is an important matter. We know that riches aren't bad because he says here, he gives us richly all things to what? Enjoy. And so Paul's not saying, and God's not saying, you know, riches are bad, get rid of them, you know, give everything away, you know, live, you know, in the poorest state that you can, and that'll be, you know, the most godly thing you can do. No, it's not what Paul's saying at all. He's saying, uh, rather, that the things that God gives us are good, and we can enjoy them. We, we have the privilege, we have the right, uh, we have really, maybe not a right, the blessing to enjoy those things, because they come from God, and he richly gives us all things to enjoy. And so, in our measure of wealth, we can enjoy things that God has given us. Um, you know, you can enjoy the extra things that God provides, as long as they don't become a, a sinful affection, where you, where you enjoy those things that God has given you more the, than the one who has given them to you. So you can be misdirected or misaligned in the things that you enjoy. You can enjoy them as long as they don't turn into sinful affections, sinful desires, where you focus more on the things that God has given than God himself. Certainly, um, you know, if you use those riches for sinful, uh, to, to enjoy sinful things, though, though God's not saying enjoy those, uh, that would be a misunderstanding of what, God's, what God is saying when he says he has richly given us all things to enjoy. That doesn't mean things, all things can be enjoyed or should be enjoyed in this world because there are certain things that are off limits, that are sinful uh, to spend our riches on. And so, obviously, we need to understand it in that light. Now Paul kind of goes into the contrast here. He says, don't be haughty, don't uh, trust in uncertain riches, but command them to do good, to trust in God and to do good. Paul's going to go on to kind of elaborate on what it means to do good, but just kind of generally looking at it from, from, uh, you know, from a kind of bird's eye view, let them do good. In your wealth, it can be easy to become so self-absorbed. You know, where's my money at? How am I going to use it? You know, how am I going to you know, build bigger barns? You know, kind of using an analogy of Scripture. How am I going to, you know, how am I going to, you know, invest in this? And, you know, what's the most recent thing I should invest in? And you can so, become so self-absorbed that you forget that, there are other things around that you should be doing, the good that you can be doing with that wealth. And the good here isn't a self-serving kind of good, like how can I make this situation better for myself? No, really, it's how can I make this situation, how can I use this wealth to do good for others, not just self, self-serving. And not just your children, too. You know, uh, it's, 
an admirable thing. I think it's a virtuous thing to have a measure of wealth that you can pass on as an inheritance to your children if the Lord blesses you in that way. But Paul's not just limiting it to that either. Not just your family, but really all of God's people. He says, let them do good that they may be rich in good works. And I think, again, here's another kind of play on words here that Paul's using uh, in contrast to the uncertain riches. Don't set your hope in uncertain riches, but set your hope in something that has eternal value, that is uh, certain. It, the riches of, of good works, be rich in good works, because those aren't uncertain. There is a promise in those things. There is a tangible outcome, both for the person who uh, maybe you're, you're doing a good work toward, and also the reward that will that is to come for that good work. And so those kind of things aren't uncertain. They are very certain. They are very uh, uh, concrete. There is a sure and good outcome to those things. He says, be rich in good works. I, I found it interesting that he started kind of with this, uh, this idea here versus, you know, simply give all that you have away or give of your riches. He says, first, be rich in good works. In other words, just for a moment, take your mind off the wealth that you have and focus on other things. There's more to this world than the riches that you have. There is a, uh, there is a richness in doing good works and using your time and your efforts, uh, not just your, you know, your pocketbook, for good. And so, Make sure that you're not just focusing on your riches, but how can you use the other gifts that God has given you to do good works? It may be your wealth, but it may also be other gifts that God has given you that you've kind of left behind in your pursuit of riches or in becoming you know, succumbed by your riches and in your thinking and in your time. But what other ways can you, can you serve beyond your riches? What other gifts that you have? What other opportunities do you have to do good works? <clears throat> he gives us another infinitive here. He says, be ready or be ready to give or instruct them to give. And this kind of, again, is deflecting from, you know, your pursuit of riches or focus on riches to say, God has given me all of these things. Now, how can I give them away? How can I give them away? What, in what ways can I give to others? Of course, you know, there's the opportunity to give to the church, but there may be opportunities to be benevolent to others who are in need, who have some, you know, they've fallen upon hard times. And Paul is saying, be ready to give at every opportunity you have that seems wise. Because when you give, though maybe your, you know, your bank account decreases, there is an eternal wealth in heaven that is increasingly growing. As that bank account goes down, the eternal bank account, if I can put it that way, is increasing because you are doing good works. You're giving to the Lord and to the Lord's work. And so you're really not decreasing your wealth. You're just reinvesting it from an earthly bank account to a, a heavenly bank account. So don't think of it as I'm losing and oh no. No, you're really just reinvest, reinvesting, diverse, diversifying your wealth in things that really matter. Not in uncertain things, but things that are certain. 
that have a sure and good outcome, both for others and for you and for God's glory. He also says, be willing to share. That might mean share in wealth, the wealth that you have. But maybe it means other things, you know, maybe broaden your perspective of that. Maybe it means sharing your home that God has richly blessed you with. You know, brother or sister, I know you have a need. You know, um, you know maybe, maybe you've fallen on hard times and you need a place to live. Come live with me. I have room for you. God has richly blessed me. Come stay with me. Maybe it's a missionary. Maybe someone uh, needs a vehicle and you have, you know, three, four, five vehicles. I don't know. Most of us probably don't have that many. But you say, you know, I know you have that need. Let me help you out. You can borrow my vehicle. Or, you know, uh, I have, you know, how many of us have a basement or a garage that's loaded with, you know, with things, tools, you know, other, other items, you know, uh, furniture or whatever. And you see, you know, some, some person that's just moved in. They don't have things. I have two or three of those. Here, take one of these. You can have it. God has done that for us, and I'm so thankful for that. And I'm sure you can think of times where people have done that to you, where they give of the things that they have. It's kind of like the early church when, you know, they gave, they sold their things, and they, you know, kind of shared their wealth. Maybe they didn't sell all of it for monetary, but they gave those things as well. They kind of shared what they had. And so Paul is saying, be willing to share what you have and think, you know, kind of think creatively of how can I do that with the wealth that God has given me. Again, it may not always be, you know, a monetary gift, but maybe there's other things God has given you that you can share uh, with others and have them enjoy the things that God has richly blessed you with. Paul then kind of gives the purpose statement here in verse 19. He says, let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Why? For the purpose of storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. Again, I think there's kind of a, a play on words or a connection here of s- storing up. Like we might store up riches in a bank account or in some other investment. Paul is saying by doing good works, by focusing on eternal matters, you are storing up a wealth for yourself and for God's glory. That is a a good foundation. The word uh, foundation here, uh, don't think, you know, kind of architecturally, like, you know, 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 you're building a building or a home and you lay the foundation. It's more, Paul's using it in a metaphorical way here in referring to a kind of a, a good basis, a, a good grounding. So in light of that, Paul is saying, store up, by doing this, you're storing up for yourself a good basis or a, a good uh, ground for the time to come, or some translations say for the future. Future is referring to uh, future with God, the eternal state, the time to come after the resurrection of our, of our bodies and our time with God. The reward that will come at the Bema seat where we are given those rewards. And again, 
I think this is kind of playing on words or in contrast to what he said earlier about, you know, rich in this present age versus the person who is storing up a good basis for the future age. You see the difference? Get yourself, your mindset off of the riches of this present age and think, how can I use those riches to invest in something that isn't uncertain, but rather is a good basis for the future? Because, as Paul said earlier, and just say it again, we came, we entered into this world with nothing, and out of it we will, you know, have nothing that will go with us. And so, think eternally, and when you do that, and when you, when you do good, when you do good works, when you are sharing, when you are ready to give, and giving, in so doing, you are storing up. You are, some translations say, you are building up treasures, heavenly treasures, as a good basis for the time to come. And finally, Paul says, in doing this, you uh, are laying hold on eternal life. And maybe if you were with us last time, you'll remember, aha, I remember Paul talking about laying hold. We talked about that uh, at a great extent. Back in verse 12, Paul's addressing uh, Timothy in a call to persevere. He says, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. And we try to kind of flesh that out. You know, what does it mean to lay hold of eternal life? Um, and we kind of said it means to really make it your, your own, to really grasp the reality of it. That eternal life is, is something, yes, you've been given, but it's something else that's to come. It's, you know, we haven't really fully, uh, fully grasped or we haven't fully experienced eternal life, although it is ours. It's our inheritance. We haven't yet experienced it fully. But, you know, how do we lay hold of eternal life? And I think, as I started out, Paul gives a very tangible example of how we lay hold of it in verses 17 to 19. You lay hold of eternal life by getting your mindset off of the earth and earthly matters and putting them on heavenly matters. How do I do that? By using the wealth that God has given me, this is one way, to do good, to be ready to give, to do good works, be willing to share That is how you lay hold of eternal life, by doing these things, by making it, by focusing your mindset on eternal matters in these very tangible ways. Again, as Paul says, in doing so, you're storing up for yourselves eternal riches or a good basis for the future. So as we close this morning, I know we're over time already, I just want you to consider this morning... Again, don't just discount yourself from this kind of category of rich, being one who is rich. God has greatly blessed you, maybe not monetarily, but in other ways as well. And think to yourself, God, this morning, how am I using those riches to glorify your name, to build up an investment in heaven, not just uh, in an investment in this earth, because those kinds of riches, the riches of this present age, are so fleeting, so uncertain, They give you no hope for the age to come. And I want to uh, finish by uh, reading Luke chapter 12. I think the Lord gives a very kind of uh, uh, anecdotal uh, story here concerning these riches or the, the kind of person who is rich. 
Luke chapter 12. And uh, beginning in verse 16, he says this, Luke chapter 12, verse 16, Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, this is to the crowd, saying, the ground, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. In other words, he inherited for himself a great measure of wealth through, these, uh, through the, the, um, the fields that he had. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? since I have no room to store my crops. Man, what a situation. <laughs> Don't even have a barn big enough to store all the wealth that I've just yielded. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store up all my crops and my goods. You see the kind of self-centered focus here? I have all this wealth, and I need to know how, figure out how I can you know, kind of build on it and uh, gain for myself a bigger and better uh, investment in more things. And I will say, verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have made good, or excuse me, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Again, riches in this present age, trusting in, in, in uh, uncertain riches, being haughty. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, fool, this night your soul will be required to you. Then those who will then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's a stark warning for all of us to focus on eternal things. And uh, maybe you're sitting out there this morning and uh, you know you don't know the Lord and uh, but now is the day. You never know when God might require your soul and uh, your riches are not going to get you into heaven. There's no hope in them. So put your hope in God and use what God has given you to glorify him and raise up a measure of eternal reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time now. We pray as we go that we would consider how we might be rich in things more than material matters, but rich in good works and being a good steward of what you've given us to give to others, share with others what you have given us because you are the source of all wealth. It is not of ourselves that we have anything, but it is of you and may we have that kind of God-centered eternal mindset this morning and the days to come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.